Canterbury fails. Their Canterbury fails. Probably never read them. The Canterbury fails. Might be moralistic or boring. Might be rhetorically soaring. Their Canterbury fails. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. Welcome to the Canterbury Fails Season 3, Episode 10. I am David Coley. I'm Matt Hussey. And today we are back on the Middle English Tip with a fine, fine fail that uh, I, or Susanna Fine, likes to call... A fine was a pun? Fine, fine fail? It wasn't, but that's good. I should have I should have been on top of that. I'll get that in post. Yeah, yeah we'll edit that in. <laughs> uh, absolutely the pun intended. The bird... With four feathers. One, two, three, four feathers. Four feathers. feathers. Uh Uh-huh. So this edition of The Bird with Four Feathers that we're looking at, which comes from the 1998 Teams edition by Susanna Fine, which was the home of another fail. And as I was uh, looking around, it may in fact be the home of a future fail. Wow. I know. Fine has really Uh, put... She's 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 a a one-woman producer of fails. Nice. And this says nothing about her scholarship, which is... Unimpeachable. Great, fantastic scholar. But anyway... That's actually uh, why we love... (laughs) No, this is really good editions of these poems that nobody writes about. So um, this is in her uh, Moral Love Songs and Laments. It is also home to the Four Leaves of the True Love or the Quatrefoil of Love, which mm. we looked at way back in Season 1, Episode 4, I think before... Is that really even, Season 1? Before we even had the song, I think. No. It might have been pre-song. It was certainly pre-graphic when we were still just sort of posting a picture of a shot glass with a layered thing in it. Oh, yeah, I remember. I made that graphic. I know you did. That was a good graphic. Anyway, it's based on Oxford Bodleian Library MS 596, which is a miscellany of mostly religious texts in Middle English Latin and a smattering, just a smattering, of Anglo-French, the good old trilingual England. I love Um, it. It's a bunch of saints' lives, devotional texts. There are a few contemporary 15th century, late 14th century political texts, including, interestingly enough, nestled in with all of these... Um, all of these religious texts, a deposition of Richard II. Oh. Um, and I, I love that, actually. I, I would really be interested in looking at this manuscript because, of course, the deposition took on certain religious connotations. Right? Sure. That's and, a bad... And so that's, it's, that's it's a project. That's worthy of interest. Yeah. So um, this poem, however, even though the... the, the um, the version that we're looking at, uh, or the base manuscript for Susanna Fine's edition, um, is from that manuscript. It exists in no fewer than ten manuscripts. Jesus, are you kidding me? I am not, because the worse the poem, the more. It's really true. <laughs> it's like the prick of conscience, it's which exists really in, what, true. like 186? Like, yeah. And then there's one Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, <laughs> this poem exists in Maybe no fewer than... Maybe they had taste. Than... Someone should write on taste. Well, okay, okay. Someone is surely writing on taste. We good. Oh. Uh, some of them are weird. Uh, some of them are witness to interesting changes <laughs> to the poem itself and to its formal structure. So as I'll discuss in a moment, the poem is unusual in that it is written in verses of wildly varying length. That's right? not unusual. Well, yes. well, but it's not. They're, it's, you know, the literary like, stanzas are all de vary. But they're, but they're rhyme stanza that's not alliterative. It's rhyme, And so you would imagine that it would be, you know, a bunch of octaves or a bunch of, no. you know, 12-line stanzas or no. something like that. But it doesn't. It's got a bunch of, there's a couple 20-line stanzas. There's some eights. Yeah. There's some 12s. There's a seven where the refrain serves as the eighth line. It's weird, right? Um, and so there are versions of this poem, even in the 15th century manuscripts, mm-hmm. that attempt to make of it. 
uh, a regularized stanza. So there will be uh, versions with eight-line stanzas or a version that's been turned into 12-line oh, stanzas. Oh, I see. So, sc- so sc- someone's tried to regularize. They've tried to regularize it. So, so very early editors were trying to do something with this poem um, and to regularize it, and they would abridge it and alter it in various ways. It's also interesting to note, and here's where our future fail comes in. Oh. It's also interesting to note that in four of the manuscript witnesses, the poem appears alongside... Petty Job. I saw the Petty Job yep. somewhere. And so uh, it shares a Latin <clears throat> refrain with this poem, the Aparse Michi Domine, which may in fact turn out to be a future fail. I'm pretty excited about that. I'll need to do some investigating. It's possible that somebody's written about it, but not many people have written about this. Mm. Before Has we anyone? get, oh. yeah, we're getting there. Uh, before we get to the manuscript editions, before we get to the print editions, and before we get to this unbelievably putrid colored drink hey. with a toothbrush. That is here in front of me. I don't know what this is. I don't know what's going on. But it really reminds me of nothing other than the Dirty Shirley. Mm, you'll be wishing. You'll be, <laughs> you'll be, you'll be like be tears streaming down your cheek longingly you for the, the Dirty you Shirley. You put the toothbrush here. And I, I mean, I'm sure that is in order to get whatever this shit is off of my teeth. Mm. But it looks like... It looks like like a fluoride thing. It looks like the kind of thing... Do you remember when you were a kid and you used to have to chew a little tablet and where where it left red on your teeth? Oh, yeah. That to show you where you were brushing. You weren't with. brushing as well as That's you That's the should. color of this drink. That is exactly mm. the color of this drink. That's a good analogy. We're going to surely talk about the drink soon, but... We will. But listen. A. Kent and Constance Hyatt... Oh, the Hyatts. The Hyatts have proposed in their edition of the poem mm. an they elaborate an okay. architectonic oh, numerology. God. Please, no. Please. Yes. They note that the poem's first seven and last seven stanza groups are groups of 76 lines. And at the middle of the poem, which is a grouping of 88 lines, oh, is, is the body of the the bird. Do you see where this is going? Those are the wings. A bird with four feathers. There are two wings, mm. one wing on either side of the body, and those are subdivided further so that each wing has four feathers upon it. So in this careful structuring, the poem has something in common with the Quatrefoil of Love, season one, episode four. Mm. Don't miss it. Sure. It also bears some comparison, though I think quite diminished comparison to Pearl, which is, of course, carefully architecturally laid out so that it looks like a rosary, that it's numerological, that it, 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 it evokes the dimensions of the holy city of Jerusalem I mean, Pearl, and all that kind Pearl of stuff. Pearl approaches the glories of the bird with four feathers. It sure does approach those <laughs> glories. There are a bunch of additions. Ten manuscript what? witnesses. Five of them roughly preserve the order and what I shall call its avian architectonics no, I don't buy that, that we see here. I know. <laughs> I know you don't. Two of them render it into regular eight-line stanzas. One renders it into 12-line stanzas. One abridges it. And one is just a little fragment. And that's the one that's housed at the Huntington. If you want to go see it and you happen to be on the West Coast, you can probably ask permission. They might not even <laughs> bother to check your credentials. <laughs> In terms of print editions, it appears first in 1904 in Joseph Kale's 26 Political and Other Poems. Mm. Carlton Brown definitely edits other. it. It's <laughs> it not political. Definitely, it's definitely other, although it's in there with Richard II. I know, but it's I know, not. I know. Uh, Carlton Brown in his Religious Lyrics of the 14th Century. That seems about right. 
Ralph Hanna uh, oh. edits the fragmentary version in a 1980 issue of the Papers of the Bibliographical Society of America. Which everyone has on their nightstand. It's number 74, in case you're yeah. checking at home. And Susanna Fine, of course, has edited in her Moral Love Songs and Laments for Teams. Is it a Canterbury fail? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. And we're done. <laughs> <It is. laughs> Let's get to this drink. Um Post-2004, I have scoured... Nothing. I have scoured the critical archive for archives and chapters. I have found traces, spore. Can I... (laughs) Right? I found barely anything, but there are five places where it is mentioned since 2020. Okay. It is mentioned in Vincent Gillespie's chapter in Thomas Duncan's 2005 Boyd Ellen Brewer Companion to the Middle English Lyric once. Okay. It is similarly mentioned <clears throat> once in Bruce Holsinger's chapter in Paul Strom's Middle English Oxford 21st Century Approaches. Basically, these talk about the fact that it's related to the sort of chanson de venture, which tends to feature a protagonist wandering around in the woods, discovering yeah. something. Sure, he did that. This guy did that. The narrator did that. That's what he did. Yeah, sure. he did that. He wandered in the woods and then for he one saw stanza. a bird. For a stanza. A and flightless then bird. A flight. Well, it's, it's, God's feathers <laughs> have been stripped away. Julia Boffy mentions the poem once in an article called What to Call a Lyric, oh. which is published in 2005 in Revue Belge de Philologie d'Histoire. Sweet. In a Belgian uh, historiography yeah, I, I got review. The, I right, got the that Belge, from the Belge. Right, it right, gave it away. Is Belgian. Okay, and here's where you know I'm really doing my job. Florence Bourne in Reverter, Attention and Focus in Macaronic Devotional Fuck. Poems. Published by the Centre d'Etudes Medievales Anglaises by the Sorbonne. Mm. That mentions it once. And, powerfully, Richard Zimmerman, in a 59-page article in the 2020 Journal of Historical Syntax, Mm. entitled, Testing Causal Associations in Language Change, the Replacement of Subordinating Then with When in Middle English. Never actually mentions the poem, but it is one of the 206 electronic test files oh. that he uses to watch this change Can over I time. Can I ask you a question? Are you Don't done? let your subscription to the Journal of Historical Syntax lapse, Hell or no. you will miss articles like that I one. I know. That's a good read. Richard, if you're listening, I'm really sorry, you're but a, that was not exciting. Okay. <laughs> Before that, Wait. finds introduction... Surely, wasn't there a book like in the last five or ten years on birds in medieval poetry? Nope. It's not mentioned in there? Not that I noticed. Are you kidding me? Who wrote that book? I can't. I was just looking at it the other day because they have a chapter on Old English seagulls. It was not mentioned. Shame. Now I feel like I need to go back and check. Even even so, I have a buffer. There is no chapter <laughs> on this. Oh. And in fact, other than Susanna Fine's introduction, That's which it. we doesn't, which we don't count, nope. the only single chapter is the Hyatt chapter that proposes this sort of almost concrete architectonic. If it was in the shape of Easter wings, I'd be buying it. But it's not. I know it's, it's not, not. But it's but it, you know they're saying that it's you know just as the quadrifoil of love is sort yeah, of I cruciform. Right? I mean, so they, they, they you know they do the work. That's sure. the only full-on article. It was in 1970, okay. Papers in Language and Literature. Uh, it's also mentioned in a 1913 volume on the Chanson d'Aventure, published by Bryn Mawr, and in Proverbs, Precepts, and Monetary Pieces. It's basically a descriptive piece. Let's get at this shockingly pink, 
thing that you put in front of me with a toothbrush. That's Am I garnish. supposed to stir it with the toothbrush? No, no, that's for later. Okay. okay. Uh, so first, I guess the key, I suppose, you, as you might imagine, is that I apologize for this because mm. it's not going to be good. Um, I fear our podcast, or indeed our friendship, may be at stake in this that, regard. Is that, is it, I don't know. Uh, um, it's but, not curdled. But duty calls, right? Loyalty, right, you, loyalty, you know, fealty piety to the founding principles of the Canterbury Fails, which have been handed down by generations through the years, right? Like the 47-year-old David gave it to the 48-year-old David, will oh, give it to the 49-year-old David? Our, or? our ancient betters framed this mm. these rules that we live by, and that's what has to happen with the cocktail. Um, so this is a drink that is called the Spare Me. Mm. Which is already, which, I'm ready. Which for is, this. which is the translation of the Latin refrain. You don't need to do it like that. The toothbrush is just to brush your teeth because it's so sucrose heavy. It's really just for brushing your teeth later. You go to Broadway Station Dental Center, huh? Yeah, they're great. Okay. Yeah, they give us a free toothbrush, so can, yeah. you're welcome. Um, it's called the Spare Me, which is a translation of the bird's refrain through the poem. Part um, Domine. But, um, but it's somewhat ironic because. Mm. You, like the poem, perhaps is ironic in some structural ways, the, 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 you maybe wish to be spared from this drink. I okay. mean, truly, it is awful. It's um, shockingly large, too. Well, this and, is a beer glass Well, that it's we're a big, at, big drink, but it's a lot of ice. It's almost all ice. And um, it's like the, the poem, um, like the four feathers that the bird um, loses. It is vivid, bright colored. It's attention grabbing. Mm. But it will betray you in the end. <laughs> this thing can be seen from space. I have neighbors looking it's, through the window from those high rises pink. over there, and they're like, "What the fuck did Coley it's, just put on the table?" Yeah, it's a hot pink. Yep. Um, it is a blend of orange and cream sodas. So orange soda, you have actually spared us perhaps a little bit by using the San Pellegrino yeah, Arancheada. I, I imagine that this really calls for orange crush. Yes, it does. Um, spiced rum. Okay. Yes. And our old friend, Peach. Oh, you motherfucker. <laughs> this, this is going to be so bad. Yes, it is. I know that. I haven't had one because I don't need to know. <laughs> so cheers. Oh, God. Oh, God. A spare me. Oh. Oh, God. Cream soda is a crime against humanity. I'm so sorry. It is wrong and bad. <laughs> Oh, God. oh, it gets worse. Peach, cream, orange. Oh, it's like a creamsicle in hell. Uh, that is the, that is, that, I don't know how many feathers you're going to give this poem, but that gets no feathers. I don't know what you're, wow, well, spoiler alert, no, listener. Listener, trust me. No, that is awful. It's disgusting. I mean, you know, sometimes we sit down and we're like, well, it's really, there is nothing complex there is nothing to think about. I think it's complex. There's these layers. First, you get the artificial. First, you get I'm the artificial licking a potpourri vanilla, bucket. Right. Then, then you're you licking get, a scented candle. It's almost and then worse. you're dipping your tongue in high you fructose corn syrup. It's almost worse that you use the good orange. Right? The, a good orange does not. Oh, it's so <laughs> bad. The good like, orange does, should not go in there. You should have just used Orange Crush. It's bubblegummy. 
Oh, it's Ooh. not good. The peach schnapps makes everything worse. It really does. Everything it touches. I think that's the slogan on the bottle. It <laughs> <laughs> makes everything worse. Um, all right, so tell me a little. What, mm. Give me the rundown on what the, what goes on in this in this lovely little poem. Hold on, I gotta have another sip of this. You don't have to. I do. Oh God, it's so bad. Oh, it really does. It makes, it makes the dirty me, Shirley look it good. Makes, it does. It Is makes. It, can, do we have to stay with positive numbers for our? Can I can, can I take away feathers Negatives? that it still has? I don't know. We've never gone there. We've we may never, have to go there. We never have gone there. It makes me want to never, like, drink <laughs> oh, again. It's disgusting. It makes me regret being born. It makes me sad to be a human, which is what this poem is about. So bring it. Let's go. The Let's poem opens, Matt. What happens in this poem? The bird with four feathers opens yes. with a narrator walking through the woods, entering into a shaded bower in which birds of all colors with shining feathers, probably much the color of this fine, fine beverage, oh. are singing amidst the flowers. But the narrator's attention... If, <laughs> listener, you can't see Matt's face as he puts oh. down this beverage. Okay, okay, okay. The narrator's attention eventually settles on a single bird sitting atop a briar. They're always on a briar. I know. It rhymes with so many things. Mm, briar. Friar. Chair. Friar. Who's, um, whose feathers seem to have been pulled, and the bird can't fly, and he sings with care and woe and tries to figure out what will become of him, and he utters for the first of 20 times the Latin refrain, Parse Michi Domine, Spare Me, Lord. Spare me. Ching Cheers. Ching. Spare me, Lord. The narrator approaches the bird and asks why she, and she is gendered here, uh, sings such a sad song. What has happened to her feathers? The feathers were the bird's pride and joy. They with were. an emphasis on pride. Mm. And as it she goeth before the fall. Right. But then she speaks and she says, look, if I tell you about this, you're going to be me so feel... unbelievably sad. Yeah. And it's going to make me sad. It's going to cause me pain to relate this story. But I'm going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And so she does. If only the narrator were listen. Bird had four feathers, two on each wing, youth, beauty, strength. And riches. Those are the four feathers, reader. Those listener. are the four feathers. Not that this is overdetermined. No, at all. <laughs> those are the four feathers. And as she speaks and begins to describe how each of those feathers has been lost, there is a shift in the bird's gender. This is what's This is a weird thing, and this is something to talk this about. This is the thing I want to talk the about. The bird becomes a dude, and the dude discusses each of these feathers that she, he, they has lost. Well, the first feather, youth. First feather is lo youth. Then. Right. Oh. And she's still a she during the youth one. I had arched brows and a high forehead. Yeah. It's courtly lady beautiful, right? Yep. So, but, but then by the time we get to the second, third, and fourth feather, I had a wife. Mm -hmm. I went to battle. I, I stabbed people and I, robbed their goods. I was a thief in the yep. dark. Like, so it's 100% a gender shift. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, so anyway, here are the four feathers. Youth is the first one. It led to pride, rash behavior, pleasure in sinful deeds, mm. lust, and eventually... The feather of youth is plucked away by age. If you're looking to see this done well, you can read the passes in Langland where age comes and beats him about the head and makes him... If you're looking to see this done not well, this is your poem. Yes. Second, beauty. Mm. Beauty also led to pride and even and also more lust. lechery. <laughs> to clapping and cussing mm. and to the devil's snares of lust. Age... Plucked that bad boy away yep. to yep. strength. 
Mm. Which led not to pride, as far as I could tell. Though probably that's lurking around the edges. Sure. But it seemed to lead to like wrath, right? I mean, to theft and plunder oh, yeah. and robbery and brigandry like, and violence. Might makes, might makes yeah, me like right. I was strong, and so I beat guys so up I, and, and took their lunch stuff. money, basically. Yeah, it's and gross. Age took that away too, and the bird was withered and unable to rob passing travelers at knife point. Yeah. And then finally, riches. Which led to a whole bunch of risky and presumptuous behavior. And there's a shift between youth, beauty, strength, and riches that I want to discuss. It's not oh. a gender shift. It's an estate shift. And mm. I want to talk a little bit about oh, that's that. That's a good one. I like right? it. Um, but it, read, it led to all this behavior that I think we might associate with like venture capitalism. <laughs> rash investing. Overspending on lavish houses. The accrual of worldly goods. The yeah. fruits of avarice. Age didn't take those things away. But our old friend Fortune turned her wheel. That's and right. it sure did. The yeah. dreamer listens to this account and then thanks the bird for teaching him so well the word parse, spare me, mercy, which at the end of this poem becomes a spur to meditation mm-hmm. for him to think about what to do to write himself yeah. with God. It's and a Christ. penitential lyric. But what's weird about this, and one of the other things, and maybe this is where we can start before we get to the gender, before we get to the estate, is that there isn't a moment where the bird is redeemed. The bird doesn't cry out for redemption and sort of see the beatific vision because he has been granted some... The bird simply serves to instruct the man that... Yes. That that the readers and, and and to instruct the reader right to move us to a recognition of our sins and our own prideful feathers right so there's never a moment here as the, as there is in some of these kind of penitential lyrics where we see the value of penitence we see the value of submission to God and we see you know the bird say you know now that I recognize my sins and have asked for God's forgiveness I may be redeemed none of that that's a bird is it. I don't know. Or no, is it a dude, not. man, lady squire, bird. merchant, man, lady? I don't know what yeah. it is. No, yeah, no, no. It's I see what you're saying. I mean, to me, I read that similar to what some of the things we were talking about uh, with the hexameron in our last episode, where where nature in the eco theology of the universe. <laughs> David's literally choking on my on my really carefully. It is made. like drinking a stick of hubba bubba. It is the worst thing you've ever had. Hubba <laughs> bubba, I forgot about that. Yeah, did you? Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, it's they, like they make rate there's bubble you know, yum hubba bubba flavored vodka. Um, <laughs> the the um, the the eco theology that we talked about, where all creation is put on Earth for our service. That's what this bird's role is. The yeah. bird is serves the man. The, the, the dreamer, whoever this guy is, right? But see, the thing that's weird about that to me is that the bird sort of... Does the most talking? Well, the bird does the most talking, but the bird also sort of flashes prismatically between its kind of avian identity. Wow. 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 I mean, <laughs> half a... <laughs> half a Sailor Jerry talking. <laughs> the bird flashes prismatically... Between its avian identity and what? Its identity as a human being. Oh, sure. Right? And so sometimes the bird's a bird. Bird's all like, my feathers are gone, right? Mm. Oh, there's my dog. But sometimes the bird is a woman. Sometimes the bird is a man. So the bird has this kind of hallucinogenic quality. Right. Like the bird alternates. Right? The bird, you know, 
if it were a bird, it couldn't be talking about like holding a knife to the mm-hmm. passing traveler's throat, right? So there is yeah. a kind of humanity to this bird, and that's I think why I was a little bit puzzled by yeah, its, I think its it, ending. The fluidity of the bird's identity, both in terms of gender, but in terms of like roles, like, you know, it's a lady at court. No, it's a thief in the woods. No, it's a father. You know, like, no, right. it's a husband. No, it's a, like, it definitely is, um, and I don't, is this just carelessness or is this some sort of deliberate allegorical entente, right? Well, like, I mean, to bring up my, to my very old and very good friend, Pearl, I mean, that's another poem where you have this kind of prismatic shifting right mm. you have the pearl maiden who starts out with as as a font right as an as an infant and then all of a sudden is a maiden full menska yep. and is both a gem and also a child and also a lover and a daughter and a woman and all of these things right yep. but that's handled that's handled with some grace <laughs> and i don't feel like this rises to that le- i mean i know that this doesn't no, rise to that level but so that, that's not the point so what do we do with that each of those identities are subservient to the feathers symbolic meaning so that's the overdeterminedness of this poem that it's much more interested in the sort of like object lesson of each feather than it is actually making sense. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. I think it's symptomatic of this penitential drive. We see this in tons of lyrics, right? This is the, the, the penitential lyric is probably the number one kind of lyric, even though we'd like to think it was secular love lyrics. Like when you read them all, eh, it's not very many of those, yeah. right? So the, the drive for this penitential thinking is what drives, produces the tail wags the dog. Mm-hmm. The feather fly, flies. Away. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it's. I. That's what I think is happening here. It's like it's more important to communicate the allegorical, and when I say allegorical, I mean it in the most simplest sense, um, meaning of each feather, than it is to have some sort of interesting reflection on like identity or whatever. Like you know, it's accidental. Beauty goes with women. That's symptomatic of medieval thinking, right? We, we talk about women and, and beauty together. That's what we do. Strength goes with men. That's symptomatic of medieval, you know, modes of thought. That I that, mean, who painted the lion? Tell me who. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, right? I mean, strength. What's the other two? I mean, I can't remember them. They're not even memorable. It's, like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, oh, riches, riches and youth. And youth, right? I guess youth goes with women. Strength goes with men, you know. Like it's so so riches go with men. I'm I I think that the the you know this that the poet or the yeah the poet is concerned with those allegorical meanings more than than like thinking through the sort of complex image in the way that like the pearl maiden is deliberately prismatic, right? It's deliberately the how do these things intersect? This, right. this guy this does not care. He doesn't care about the intersections. I mean, it, in, but I, in so doing, it evinces medieval patterns of thought that, you know, are simplistic in yeah. some ways. Yeah. Even though that's not how medieval people thought, but I mean, that's that, that, that generically they did. Well, and this is presumably uh, written by, I mean, I'm assuming this poet was male. I'm assuming I would this, totally poem, assume that. this poet was perhaps monkish. <laughs> Um, right. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I'm assuming that this is, I mean, you know, so we're talking about medieval patterns of thought, but you know, I think that, that, you know, the anti-feminism that's baked into this, mm. the misogyny that's baked into this, that women, you know, as, as you were saying that women go with youth and beauty and yeah. men go with riches and strength. Like, and when women go with youth and beauty, that means they go with lechery. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I find it, I, I no, mean, I, now maybe there's something anti-masculinous in some way because men who have strength rob. 
Well, this, I mean... This, or, or, you know what I mean? Well, or men who or have they, strength rob and women who have beauty seduce. Yeah. And, and have sex with all kinds of people and then, you know, have their feathers stripped. Which is, like, the worst. The fucking worst. This reminds me of my, like, horrifying Protestant, like, upbringing... In in a, in a fairly rural place, mm-hmm. and we had we had the sex education thing where they were like, "Your virginity is like a flower, and if you prick one petal, do you really want that flower?" And then they kept picking the petals out, and you were left with a stick. It was awful. It was awful. So this reminds me of that, which doesn't endear me to this poem. No, I'm not endeared. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not endeared. You There's like this one. Well, I mean, we'll do. We can talk about the ranking later. So, so, so you brought up medieval habits of thought. I brought up the fact that this is probably a male writer. That there, that the, the misogyny is baked into this. That the ways in which women are aligned with beauty and men are aligned with strength and so forth. What do we then make of the of the gender shift? Is that just a part and parcel of this same issue? Yeah, that's what I that's what I was sort of trying to propose. That 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 the I mean, it's it, it is for us as critics fascinating that gender is fluid for the bird right right? that it it moves from a female figure to a male figure very clearly like not even subtly like it's very clearly it's a her and then it's a him um so so that is part so i but i do think that that is just symptomatic of like this guy trying to you know exempt to make good exemplars of each of these four sins or whatever these four transient things um that said, I, uh, this is where, it, for me, it intersected with maybe medieval science because I do know that some birds were considered hermaphroditic hmm. in the Middle Ages, right? That they changed from male to female. It's like some animals were seen as moving from one to the other. And so it would make natural sense, and I mean that in the sort of multiple senses that it has, it would make natural sense that a bird could be female than male. But it, I mean, of course, we're also the the line that you pointed out that it crosses is it the, is the bird a human or is it a bird? Right, right. <clears throat> and it's, it's it's like obviously. Yeah, and at the end of the day, um, the bird is a symbol. Well, it's a symbol, exactly. <laughs> like it's it's this is it's like Matisse when he's like that woman you painted doesn't look like a woman, and he's like it's not a woman, it's a painting, <laughs> right? So that's what's going on here. That this is a poem, and this is a literary symbol, and so. You know what does it tell us that 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 to illustrate a uh, moral penitential point, right. gender means nothing. So then let's look at a state because that yeah, that's I'm interested in that, that because I, I didn't think, think of that. I want to hear you what you got. Well, on that. I mean the first three the first three sections of this are courtly in some way oh, yeah. or another. Gen- the right. courtly lady, the youth. You have the courtly lady. Um, beauty, you have a, a, another courtly lady, but also a courtly man, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with with strength, you have weird sort of like thievery, but it, it again doesn't seem to play into it doesn't seem to play into a kind of mercantile sensibility. It doesn't seem to speak. I mean, this is a 15th century poem. We're looking at, you know, this is in the wake of the Canterbury Tales. This is in the wake of Pierce Plowman, which has a concern with merchants and and, and mercantilism. Um, it, you know, it, it, is, it is operating within that kind of literary environment. Sure. You, when you shift to riches, you move into a very... I think deliberate set of mercantile sins. 
that are enumerated by the narrator in ways that point the finger squarely not at courtiers, not at, you know, people in court or lascivious ladies or what have you, but at merchants, full stop. Okay. This is stanza group 15. And, mm. and this is where you will, reader, listener, person on the other end, um, whoever you finally, are. whoever you are, finally get a, a chance to hear this poem. And please forgive me. <laughs> the yeah. metrics make it difficult to work through. So, as does the uh, the sucrose that is so entrenched oh, in our mouths that we I can barely can't. open God, it's them. Bad. It's like my lips and teeth are getting stuck together by the deep, sugary ah. mass that this drink is. Me fair the feather, my fourth feather, riches was. To make it sheen, e travailed sore, I worked so hard. So labor for money. Yes. E went in many a perilous place, well oft me leaf was neck forlore. I went to many perilous places, well oft my life was lost. Be dala, be dona, be woda, seed. E bore many a bitter shore. In salt to say, e silent well weed. For to, and here's the phrase that I think is interesting. Yep. For to multiplia me tresor. With false slichtes, he got me god. With false slights or deceptions, I got my goods. In covetous, he grounded me. Jesu for the precious blood, parse mici domine. When he was secure of gold, you know, when I had was enough secured of gold, he gan to read about well fast. He purchased much, and God wot how, God knows how, E when this leaf would ever have a last, e let me build a castle and Taurus, without e warded with strong ditch, within e builded halls and bore us. There was no Tora me castle leaf. There was no there was no castle like my tower. Mm. In this, this is where mail. This is the mail part. Oh yes, I realize that. <laughs> In this was he set all me leaking and turned me, Lord, holish from thee. I turned away from you, holy, O God. And now to thee I cry, parse michi domine. And then, of course, he lost his cattle and his tortoise. His castle fell suddenly, and he couldn't pass it on to his heirs because, as men say. God get untruly in thrid air broke it nay may, which is a proverb apparently. I, I kind of love that. Um, <clears throat> goods gotten unjustly will not be passed to the third air, right? So you have these sins, right? That, that, that idea of multiplication, which we see in the um, Canon's Yeoman's Tale, in the sure. Canterbury Tales, right? Yeah. Which is about alchemy, which is about sort of false. Uh, creation of wealth, but we also see it in the Shipman's Tale, where his gold multiplies, right? And 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 for the merchant, and at this moment, that multiplication, to use Chaucer's word, and 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 you know that, that's that's used here, is suspect. So it's called the Four Feathers Poet. The Four Feathers. <laughs> the Four poet. Feathers Poet. The FFP. If you're if you're, if you're writing a, a monograph on this, this is the Four Feathers Poet. If you are writing a monograph on this, do not send it to me. I do not want to read it. Um, You're officially now the most qualified, besides Susanna <laughs> besides Fine. Besides Susanna Fine, who I hope that I'll be seeing um, at the Chaucer Review Dinner. I love, I always chat with Susanna once every year. She's well, great. why don't you talk about this with her? I, What's up with that? <laughs> Susanna, you edited that? No, Susanna, if you're our listener, I'm really sorry. Um, but so there, but there is this, this 
this concern over multiplication, this concern over Ill-gotten. the way in which games are are gotten, and and this makes sense. And there's also concern over cons- uh, spending it. Conspicuous consumption. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, winner and Wastor are both represented here. Right. But in 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 the Canterbury Tales, and again, I'm thinking particularly of the Shipman's Tale, there is this sort of mysteriousness to that multiplication because what you've got here yeah. is not somebody who is. I don't know, growing grain out of the ground and then cutting it down and selling it or giving it no. for for security to a feudal lord. You don't have somebody who is raising sheep, killing them, making a couple sweaters, right? What's what's being done here is weird, right? It's it's stuff that I still quite honestly don't know how to do or else maybe I would be living downtown rather than up here in my mountaintop lair, right? Like, I don't know how to buy high and or buy low and sell See, that's high. how bad you are at it. That's right. That's right. Buy expensive, sell cheap. So, so, interestingly here, so can could we, could we suggest that in its inadvertent representation of emergent mercantile sort of economic drives if this poem does reflect them in some way Mm -hmm. could we say that this poem is conservative in that it looks back on more fondly on a previous age of pre-capitalism i mean I want to, in the same way that I want to say that Chaucer evinces a kind of anxiety, but a, 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 a general acceptance of what we would call proto-capitalism or mercantilism, and, and, and that he struggles with it, but ultimately, you know, the shipman tithes, right? That the, the shipman does good work um, in, in some way or another, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, the, 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 the um, alchemist in the Canadian's tale is demonstrably false and there's a difference between the alchemist and the you know merchant of Saint-Denis and the shipman's tale so I mean I think I think I want to say that but I, I keep coming back to your point which is that this is not a poem that seems to have a kind of ideology it, it, it doesn't seem to have oh, that it does kind it's of a penitential right, but it doesn't have an ideology in terms of class or a state or well that's why it's more it's interesting because it's accidentally expressing it's not this. like it looks back so fondly on feudalism either though right like it's not like it's like this merchant should be you know working on a demand and growing grain instead of getting ahead of himself and trying to yeah you know embiggen himself to become a lord like it's not you know you don't have a figure like the franklin right where you can sneer at the sort of new moneyedness of him or a figure like the reeve where you say this is an old decaying order it 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 doesn't it just doesn't it (laughs) listener Matt just finished his drink (laughs) it was so gross (laughs) fine god so i don't know i mean i don't I mean, maybe it accidentally. I mean, maybe there's some in that. Stanza, I think it's symptomatic it's slippage, right? Yeah, it, it's, it's symptomatic. It makes it historically interesting, if not literarily. Yeah. Right. So if I was a young up and comer who worked on the emergence of capitalism in various kinds of allegorical texts, this would be a place you could go and like wonder a little bit about yeah. like this this sort of vehement anti sort of multiplication multiplication yeah right might it might i mean it, it might 
be telling. The way that this would... I mean, I'm actually thinking about that kind of project. Like, what would you... If you were writing on this, if you were doing scholarship on what you're what you're discussing, which is this mm. sort of anxiety that surrounds a kind of emergent capitalist ethos. Yeah. There's not enough in this poem to make a go of it. I don't I don't think you could write. I mean there's this not is not a chapter to be had. There's not a chapter, there's not an article. But it would fit but well would, with Winter and Wayne. I, I, I wonder if there is within the penitential lyric more broadly uh, oh. an anti an mercantilist or a, a sort of conservative or retrograde or call it what you will, a, a kind of understanding of the you know of the uh, of the economic engine of its world like do, do we get in the penitential lyric and and i mean it, my, my sort of felt answer is it's it's almost got to be but I, I don't have any evidence for that except this and other penitential lyrics that i've read and you know haven't oh, really thought worth about looking it like at this. but That's you know if, if you took a sample of penitential lyrics if you looked at this and petty job and you know, whatever the quatrefoil of love, and you know, a bunch of there's a there's a there's a bunch of it. Basically, Susanna's book, right? <laughs> like, if you looked at that edition, there's a lot. Would you find across? That's an that excellent research field? question. Excellent yeah. research question is yeah. that is an anti-capitalist or problematically capitalist sort of tension embedded in penitential thinking? Yeah. In the 14th and 15th century. And again, my guess is yes, but I, I would need to. I would, I would need to, yes. I would too. need to back that up, and I can't right now. And so I mean, it is a research question. You could look at Pierce Plowman. You could look at. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. not a. That sounds good. Yeah, I like it. Um, I had another issue or two, but I'm not going to go into them at length because you know we don't need to talk about this poem all that long. <laughs> um, first, the the one thing that I found interesting is is the. So the the parquete mihi, parquet. Sorry, what is it? Yeah, parquet parquet mihi. So parquet. You you give that a hard C. Well, I'm a class. I was trained by a classicist. Mm. I was trained in Latin by an Ov, of Ovid scholar. You know, I had when I was at the University of Maryland, the the, the, the Latinist was also Italian, and he read it parche. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. and 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 he argued that. It, w- it it should be partial that it was closest to Italian. There was he clearly had a, a sort of so linguistic my, stake. My the Latinist who trained me was an Irish guy, right? So he, said, so he was like, no, he so he he leaned into the classicizing Latin because you know Irish has nothing to do with Latin. <laughs> anyway, uh, is the there is this macaronic refrain. Yep. The poem does have a refrain, which is an interesting structural principle. We don't see it all the time in medieval lyrics. Um, and that is, we, I mean, we see it later in, in the 14th century, but it's rare earlier. And um, this is a, this, I wondered a little bit about the sort of intersection of ling, uh, sort of the, the sort of like macaronic aspect of this poem. And I, don't, I guess animal studies, like that the bird call yeah. is this nonsense, which he's interpreting as parque mihi or parse mihi or whatever whatever bird call that would be right i mean it, it, I, I i keep bringing chaucer up i'm teaching chaucer right now he's, he's on my mind but i think of halcus Leiden um from the squire's tale mm-hmm. right um but but that idea that the that the bird is 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 making a sort of 
vox inarticulata that yeah. we recognize as that we take or interpret yeah. as a in the same way that in a much more secular and body way we interpret cuckoo as cuckold in the same way that we sure. right so yeah I think that's really interesting anyway so that might be I mean so it might be making a play with play play with that part of the well and that I mean and that clearly is a part of the I mean you say that that structural I mean that, that that's clearly as though you hear you know, it's the bird call outside that we yeah. interpret. So the, the, that that refrain but the, becomes... But in this, the, the bird talks so much Yeah. anyway. So it's like, it, the bird speaks English, but then its bird call is like some nonsense, which we're making Latin. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that I thought that was interesting, ironic, that I said ironic earlier, is um, <clears throat> that... Because it smacks of dream vision. He doesn't fall asleep, though. Well, I know, but dream visions, you never really know. You go into a garden, you lay down in the flowers. What's next? You sleep. <laughs> right? He lays down in the flowers. He does. He laid, he lied me doon upon that grena and cast me a and me. But he's looking around. I know, but he's laying down Maybe in the he's flowers. Mind so I think it's little dream vision-y, at least. It's, it's definitely a little dream vision A little dream vision I, I, I have no problem with right? that. Right? And in the dream vision... Right? The classic, the go-to dream vision of the Middle Ages, of course, Boethius, where... It's so fun. I was about to say Romance of the Rose. Oh, it, that's a good one, too. I mean, there there are a couple of go-to, you know, and also the Book of Revelation. There's like, the, that's like the big three. So in the dream vision that I'm thinking of, Boethius, um, presented with a female authority figure mm. who then lays out the truth, right? So Boethius falls asleep philosophy comes to him in his dream schools his little neoplatonic ass in <laughs> in all sorts of forms of wisdom um and uh th that's fine we see that in pearl a, it's a girl but another female authority figure comes in schools his ass in de various doctrinal points right so in this poem it's weird i thought it was kind of interesting because we have this female figure right, at least initially, the bird, who starts to teach this dude, but rather than being the exemplar of wisdom, which Pearl Boethius would be, mm -hmm. uh, it's the exemplar of failure, yeah. right? That the bird, is, the bird is the subject of the sort of cruel hostility of the pain of time, right? That, you know, time strips everything away. And age, fortune, whatever they call it, right? Like, all the good stuff that you have will be ripped from you, leaving you a flightless fowl, right? So um, I, f I found that sort of, like, inversion of the dream vision structure in that respect a little bit interesting. Yeah. I mean, I mean there's not... You know, no, I, I do. I mean, I, I, I hear that. I mean, I, I also think about... Um, I mean, as you're saying that, as you're talking about that and, and, and the way that the, the sort of dream vision structure or the expectations of the dream vision structure works, the other thing I think about is, is morality drama. I think about something like Everyman, mm. um, where Everyman cannot take anything with him. Like, he, you know, all his friends leave him, his good works leave him, the, the sort of personification, and he goes alone to face his judgment. Mercy. Um, to, to face mercy. And then mankind stages that somewhat differently. But yeah, it's the same kind of idea. But that's where, what's left here. Yeah. All you have so, left is parquet. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that that is, 
that is every man, honestly. I mean, that's that this is sort of the plot of that entire play. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think that's interesting that you see that as sort of anti Boethius, or that, that there's a there's a kind of inversion of Boethius, but the last at least an inversion of the insane. authority figure. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> it's still not enough to make this poem all that interesting. So I think it's time to rate. Uh, you are the one writing the poem. I get to rate the drink, and I am only trying to figure out how low the basement floor goes. So go ahead with the poem. Well, I'm gonna. The scale is, of course, zero to four feathers, mm-hmm. and I'm going to tell you that <laughs> I did not love this poem. It's 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 not fantastic. I. It's not. I'm. I'm with you. You don't need to apologize. I found a fail. I was pretty excited. Yeah, you did. You did. You've done your job. Uh, and you've done yours. I'm gonna give so. it uh, a one out of four feathers. That's what I was gonna give it to. Okay. You get to rank the drink on the same scale from zero to four. Oh, okay. So here's the thing. Mm. If this drink had four feathers. Oh shit! We're getting deep now. Let's and go. It, and it lost those four feathers. It would be a flightless bird. And somebody then gave it four more feathers. Uh-huh. I would take those feathers away from this drink, <laughs> thus giving it four pits in its bird flesh where feathers wow. should be. Cool. It is a negative four feather drink. Wow. It is as yeah. bad a drink as we have had on the Canterbury Fails, and that includes the curdled egg and orange juice concoction that I made earlier this season. It includes the dirty Shirley that you made at one point. It includes the sex on the beach to which I added Frangelico, thus rendering it entirely unpalatable. And it includes, of course, listener, it includes our whale vomit Sazerac. <laughs> this is the absolute bottom. Is this the worst drink we've it had? This is the worst drink we've had. Rum, peach schnapps, and soda. Not even soda, pop. Two kinds of pop. It is bad it is apocalyptically bad. It is a negative four feather. Wow, God! I, what do you give it? I'm gonna wear that with a badge of as a badge. As well, of you should good. because this is a new nadir. Uh, yeah, I, I was. I'm gonna go with zero. I'm not willing to pull out the hyperbolic negs on this. Um, it's terrible. My it's teeth t- feel like they're wearing trench coats. Um, it is <laughs> pink trench coats. It is disgusting. It's it, it is. Sickly, sickly sweet. It is um, artificial at so many levels. Like it tastes like, like a New Jersey refinery that produced these chemicals. It's like the t- it's like to a, make fake like orange Taylor. and fake cream and f- fake you know peach. It's all there. It's gross. It's the Taylor Ham roll of beverages. What's that? You've never been. You've never had Taylor Ham. It's in New Jersey. It's like it's like New Jersey's answer to Scrapple. Oh. No, it's not good. It's like a, it's 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 a it's a it's it's a ham roll. It is what it sounds like. It's a ham roll, and you cook it. <laughs> no, see if I can work it into no, a drink. No, let's next not time. do that. Um, so I'm gonna give it the zero. Okay, and you're not I'm, taking feathers away though. No. You're not. You're not. No. <laughs> you don't have. It's like no. your feather. Futures. It's not worth that effort. <laughs> it's definitely not. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. We have both finished it. Well, we have to. It's but it's, it's part of the enshrined laws and regulations handed down just by the Mysterium de Canterbury Filialium. <laughs> like that is not to be trifled with. We have to finish the drink. Well, um, listener, it is done. I'm gonna have a beer. Consumata mass. La- listener, um, if you made it through this episode, you've really been close to the the pit of despair that is this podcast but good news for you listener there is every chance that 
Dr. Hussey and I might get it together to do another stunt episode in the not-too-distant future, so stay tuned. Oh yeah, a stunt episode which will decidedly not involve cream soda.